Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you're about it, Our earliest memories revolve around where we're from. And where we're from makes us also we are. It's the water we swim and it creates us or neighborhood. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the meaning of home. The average restless American will move 11 times in their life. Studies show the very idea of home resonates with our deepest emotions. But what makes a home? And do the memories of our experiences influence who we become? On this weekend after Thanksgiving, Americans are marking the official start of the holiday season. It's a special time when many will go home and others will be creating new home spaces. On this show, we are exploring the theme of home through two new books. Later in the show, an encore of one of our favorite segments, The Daily Table in Dorchester offers fresh foods at radically reduced prices with a mission to help the community. We speak with founder Doug Rao and executive chef Ismael Samad about the unique grocery store that will soon open its second location in Dudley Square in Roxbury. But first, joining me from the studios of Virginia Tech, Melody Warnick, author of This Is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are. She is an established freelance journalist whose work has appeared in top magazines, including O, The Oprah Magazine, Fast Company, Better Homes and Gardens, and Quartz. Welcome, Melody. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you. And joining me from the studios of the Radio Foundation in New York, Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters, editors of a collection of essays entitled, This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. Hello, Margot and Kelly. Hi. <laughs> Great. Let's start where both of you began. It just happens that both these books arrived in our office within days of each other. And we thought, wow, there's a lot to think about when we start thinking about home. So, Melody, let me start with you. Why is it that thoughts of home bring up so many different kinds of emotions from expectations to anxieties? Well, home is such an integral part of who we are. I mean, our earliest memories all revolve around where we're from. And where we're from really makes us who we are. I grew up in Southern California, and it really wasn't until I moved away to college that I realized the fact of my being from California influenced everything from my fashion choices to my terrible Valley Girl accent. And, you know, it's the water we swim in, and it creates us as people. Um, how would you answer that, Margot? I think what Melody just said was so perfect. As much as we might try to escape our home if it was an unpleasant place to be, or as much as we might have fond memories of our home, those influences stay with us for our entire lives. Kelly, uh, your book is subtitled Women Writing About Home, uh, the book that you and Margot edited. What did you think or did you know that there might be something special or different about how women think about home? Well, I think it started really just talking among friends and then looking at what we were reading and experiencing. 
and talking with one another. There is the idea that, you know, where we're from makes us who we are. And that also, when Margot and I were talking about the idea of home, makes us think about how to recreate or create and shape a new home as we're moving out into our own places and building families and what that means. And I think what we realized is home really can also be a four-letter word, for better or for worse. And the way that home makes, breaks, and shapes us is so individual, and yet there's so many common threads, especially with women and our decisions when it comes to the home. So, Melody, back to you. You had a very personal reason for taking up the task of making the statement, finding home wherever you are, because your family moved. So tell us your personal story. Right. So, like I said, I grew up in California and never moved a single time from the cul-de-sac where I lived until I went away to college. And then I got married and my husband and I started ping-ponging across the country to different states, Maryland and Utah and Iowa and Texas, and ultimately ended up in Virginia. And all the moves were for good reasons, jobs and schooling, getting closer to family, getting farther away from family. And I realized after maybe the sixth move that every time I landed in a new place, it really overturned my life for a long time. There was so much expectation in moving. I always had this belief that if I somehow just managed to find the right place, that everything in my life would be better. I would change as a person. All those bad habits would be left behind in the last town. And suddenly in this new place, everything would be great. And I finally had to come to terms with the fact that it never quite worked out like that. It was always complicated and lonely and discombobulating to move to a new place. And I didn't always love it. I came here to Blacksburg, Virginia about five years ago and thought that this would be the personal Shangri-La that I had been looking for. And pretty quickly I realized I didn't like it that much. (laughs) Um, You know, when are we going to move on? Uh, When are we going to find the actual best town for me? But with two relatively small children and all these moves under my belt, I realized It was up to me to make my place into my home, that I couldn't wait for myself to magically land in a town that would make everything perfect. I had to make it perfect for me. And the way I did that was simply by changing my behaviors and my thought processes in the town to create a sense of community for myself and learned in the process that that is possible. So that's my guest, Melanie Warnick. Her book is This is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are. I want to note that you laid out a few very practical kinds of things to do to make a home wherever you are. And I want you to pick up on a few of them and explain them because what we see in Margot and Kelly's book is that a lot of that was expressed in the stories there because I think you figured out that there's some universality in in making all this stuff work. So what would be of your 10 lessons to be happier in the place you land? Just a couple of the top ones. Everything that I came up with, and I call these love where you live experiments, were based in research that I discovered about this concept of place attachment, this idea that we can develop an emotional bond with your place. So some of the 10 things that I focused on were 
things that research said made people happier in their communities, made people like it more, like walking and biking. There's a lot of research right now that says we are happier when we are in walkable neighborhoods and walkable communities. So I kind of deduced that when we walk and bike where we live, we tend to like it more. And then there was a lot of research that said neighborly connections really make people feel at home where they live. That's something that has completely gone by the wayside in you know the past 40 or 50 years from a time when you really did socialize with your neighbors to now where 30% of Americans don't know the first name of any of their neighbors. But I made an effort to get to know my neighbors, to take banana muffins to them or to invite them over for dinner. Small actions that made me feel like I knew people and I was more socially connected, which is really important to our sense of place. And then finally, there was research that showed that certain behaviors community members could take were good not only for them, but for their towns, like shopping locally, buying things from local independent stores instead of online or from big box stores helps communities and towns thrive economically. So it's one of those things that's relatively simple to do, but just requires a little shift in your thought process. But it can make a big difference, not only for where you live, but for you personally in making you feel invested in your town. That's Melanie Warnick. I want to emphasize that there is a lot of really interesting research that you reference in this book, which I think will help people. So you're not just sort of making this stuff up off the top of your head. Not only did you research (laughs) it, I just want people to say that because people are going to listen and say, well, that seems so simple. How does she know that? Well, she knows because she talked to quite a number of scientists, which I encourage you to read in the book. Let me move on uh, back to Margot and Kelly, because what I saw in Melody's book and Margot Kahn and Kelly McMaster's are editors of This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. What I saw in a number of the essays were many of the things that Melody sort of excavated about how people make home and keep home and think about home. And I wondered what you took away that was common in many of the stories. This is Kelly. I would say one of the first things that we realized, there are 30 essays here and almost across the board, there's some mention of a mother or some kind of generational maternal lineage in almost every piece, whether someone is writing as a mother or writing about their own mother or writing about their grandmother. There are a lot of grandmothers in here too. And the thing that was not so common would be that home is not necessarily where you live. I think the commonality there is that home is a nostalgic place, is a place that for most people does not quite exist either anymore or yet. And so we have this idea of home and we're either trying to move away from it or move toward it, but very few people in our experience in our essays that we read for the collection actually felt that they were home. So there's a dislocation. And I would say the other commonality is, like it or not, the political implications of the idea of home, whether that means where you're from, where you want to be going, or the choices that you make, whether to stay home or to return to a place or where you make your home, all of those things, especially in 2017, have become very politicized. And so there's a politicized home front that has been activated. And all of these 30 essays, I think, weave through all of those ideas. 
So, Margot, I wonder, because Kelly pointed out something that I noticed about the mother theme in a lot, or the grandmother theme in a lot of the essays. Is that because of the sort of thought that the mothers are the heart of the home, if you will, that they make the home? Do you think that's why that came up so much in many of the essays? I think that is why. Traditionally, women have been the homekeeper, not necessarily the homemaker. And Kelly and I thought long and hard about whether or not to only include women in this collection. And in the end, we decided that these were voices that really needed to be heard. And this tradition, as it were, there is change-making happening now. And we see more men staying home. We see more conversation about that or hear more conversation about that. But it still does remain an assumption to some degree that the woman holds the home place. So we wanted to hear from women about how that's going in this day and age and what people are looking forward to this transition being. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Melody Warnick, author of This is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are, and Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters, the editors of an essay collection entitled This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. We're discussing the meaning of home at a time when most Americans live far from the place they grew up. Margot and Kelly, I'm going to ask you both to read an excerpt from your essays, which are also included in the book that you edited. Tell me which one of you is going first, and we'll go from there. I'll go first. This is Margot. Okay, Margot, your piece is entitled In the Kitchen. In the house I grew up in, the kitchen was renovated in the 1980s with a modernist white, gray, black palette. Gray floor, white cabinets, white counter, white fridge, white stove. In this kitchen, my mother cooked regularly, but never with pleasure. There was no joy for my mother in this kind of ephemeral creation, a thing you labored over only to find it consumed quickly and often without appreciation. Her flank steak was always the same, marinated in soy sauce. Her chicken breasts usually came to the table raw inside, returning to the oven only to end up overcooked, tough and dry. Dinner was a necessity, and it was her job to put it on the table, my mother told me time and again, because my stepfather worked and made the money to keep us housed and clothed and fed. She held to this belief even after she got her own job and made good money herself. My mother worked as a consultant part-time, while the house and the children were still her primary responsibility. Her outside-the-house work gave her an identity other than homemaker, an outlet I think she needed as a way to be sure she would not become her mother. But her consulting career, so long as she had children in the house, was always secondary. Meanwhile, in my friend's basement, our favorite game to play was restaurant. From a bin in the play kitchen, we took plastic drumsticks and sunny-side-up eggs, piled them on plates, ferried the plates and cups back and forth to the invisible customers, back and forth, back and forth. We dreamed of one day being waitresses, We dreamed that we owned the restaurant. But I never imagined being the primary breadwinner for a family. Professions for women, so far as I understood, were best when they were flexible and ended early enough in the day to pick children up from school, to have summers off. Whereas a friend whose single mother was a doctor received the implied message that she could grow up to be a working mother and the primary breadwinner for her family, and she has, men around me said things like, Do something you want to do. Someone will take care of you. 
This was a strange middle step of an idea, the approval of a woman's freedom while keeping her imprisoned, tethered, powerless. That's my guest, Margot Kahn. Her piece is In the Kitchen. It's an essay in the book that she edited called This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. Kelly McMasters, would you read an excerpt from your essay in the book? Absolutely. This is from The Leaving Season. A vacation house is like an affair, I suppose. A weekend or summer house offers excitement, possibility, and contrast. Instead of being with a different person, you are with a different house. When you choose to be with a person other than your partner, and usually for small bits of time compared to the time spent with your main partner, part of the allure is the freedom to be a different person yourself. The same happens when you're with a different house. Sometimes that fantasy feels so real and so much better than what you've already got going on, you leave your partner for the affair. But ultimately, you still have to figure out how to pay bills and who is going to make sure the propane tank is full and who's going to change the toilet paper rolls. Suddenly, the person you imagined you could be is eclipsed by all the same small worries that took up your time before the switch. Marriage is also a kind of fantasy. In my mind, in our farmhouse, we would write and paint and raise our children with intention and integrity, surrounded by the beauty of the natural world. I'm embarrassed to admit this now, and it sounds so childish, but it's true. I imagined our new home would have a dollhouse quality, with our worlds taken up by moving from one room to another and another, a tiny galaxy of four planets held within our creaking walls. But the longer we lived full-time in the farmhouse, the farther away from one another Em and I drifted. That's my guest, Kelly McMasters. Her piece was The Leaving Season. It's an essay in the book that she and Margot edited. This is the place women writing about home. You know, I wanted to hear your voices from the essay collection, but I thought they illustrated a lot of what we've been talking about here now, the whole mother figure at the center and the shaping of that. But also something that, Melody, you spend some time talking about, which is making the place uh, your own is not always cheery. I mean, things happen. <laughs> you got to figure out how to exist there. And as Kelly says, you know, buy the toilet paper, do all of that. And in our minds, we always think home, happy place, happy place, but not necessarily so. So I was fascinated, Melody, about your looking into people who decide to stay in a place. They like it and they decide to stay when they have other options. I wonder if you would read a piece from your book. This is where you belong, finding home wherever you are. And this is about one of the women in Blacksburg named Gertie. More than six in 10 adults move to a new community at least once in their lives. But the truth is that often they don't go very far. A Pew Research Center study found that 57% of Americans have never lived outside their home state. More remarkable, 37% have never left their hometown. For a country that prides itself on its happily mobile populace, that more than a third of American adults still live where they grew up seems shocking. To the modern imagination, people who never leave their hometown are viewed with suspicion, seen as unadventurous at best, pathetic at worst. A telling 2013 headline from The Onion reads, Unambitious loser with happy, fulfilling life still lives in hometown. Sure, we think you can have a nice life in your hometown, but why would you want to? In his book, Who's Your City?, the demographer Richard Florida divides people into three categories— the mobile, the stuck, and the rooted. We tend to focus on the first two, 
the mobile who can pick up and move to opportunity, and the stuck who lack the resources to leave where they are, Florida says. But we cannot forget about the rooted, those who have the means and opportunity to move, but choose to stay. Why do they choose to stay? Because they're content where they are. From the outside, it can be tough to tell the difference. If I hadn't spent time with her, I would have assumed that Gertie Moore was stuck in that West Virginia coal mining hollow. Except she wants to live there. She's never considered moving. For all its faults, Gertie chose Laredo, and that makes her rooted. I think the whole rooted concept is very interesting. Here's something that, that both of you talk about a lot is abject homesickness. So people have moved in the essays to places, and they are so homesick for their concept of home or space where they were. I'd love you to both, all three of you, to speak to how abject homesickness was dealt with in both of your books. Let's start with you, Margo. Well, I think the essay that most comes to mind when you talk about homesickness from our collection is an essay by Kirsten Sundberg-Lundstrom, And she writes about how when she was living in New York with her husband and two small children, she had a very strong homesick feeling for her native Pacific Northwest. And she and her husband both had terrific jobs, not easy jobs to find. The children were happy. But she was away from her family. Her husband also had roots in the Pacific Northwest, but it was she in particular who really was homesick. And one day she decided it was just enough. She was too far from her family and from the landscape also that she loved so much. And so they return to the Pacific Northwest. They leave their jobs. They have no jobs lined up when they depart New York, nor do they have a place to live, nor do they have the finances to get their own place to live without work. And so they wind up moving in with her parents. And, you know, as Melody talked about the sort of stigma of, you know, living in the place you grew up, there was this double stigma almost for Kirsten moving back in with her parents in her 30s with children in tow. And she talks about how she was, you know, almost embarrassed to tell anyone where she lived when she would meet people, other mothers on the playground. She moves back, and I think what we find in this essay is this really deep joy and contentment and surprise in seeing her parents, understanding her parents in a new light as an adult, seeing her children and their grandparents bond on a totally new level by being together day to day in the same house. And this idea of intergenerational living isn't one that comes up that often in our daily dialogue, but she really finds a very deep beauty in it. Yeah, that was a really impressive one. I, um, I mean, all of them are impressive for different reasons, but that one really got to me because the power of that homesickness I really felt down in my gut. And Melanie, I, I felt it from you too because you were longing for someplace, any place, just get me out of Blacksburg. <laughs> and I, I want to emphasize that the, the great thing about your book is that you tried all these things that people told you to try to make a space there, but you were suffering a long time for other places. <laughs> Right. And I'm, I'm sure people in Blacksburg, <laughs> to hear that, are Not just now. so offended. <laughs> right. Not now, but originally. Uh, the, the spoiler alert is that it did change for me. But, you know, when you're in that moment of I've just moved to a new place, I don't know where I put the silverware and I can't find the black beans in the grocery store, you just feel 
so lost. I remember someone that I interviewed for the book described it as this realization that if I died, no one in a 100-mile radius would care. You know, you just feel so alone. And that can be really tough to take. And when you're moving around a lot, when you're mobile, like I was for many years, you always have this sense of forward-looking possibility. And it's getting there (laughs) that can be tough. Uh, Landing in a place and realizing it's not what you thought. And you're lonely for a long time. So a lot of creating a home in whatever place you happen to be in is meeting people, making friends, creating those connections, and sort of digging yourself a little spot right where you are. And it doesn't happen right away. There's research that says that feeling of place attachment, that feeling of belonging and happiness in your place, takes about five years to really come to full strength. I'm there right now. We've been in Blacksburg for five years and we are so rooted. We're currently building a house in town. You know, that's how much we want to stay where we are. But it took a while. And those original couple years were filled with a little bit of longing for elsewhere. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Melanie Warnick, author of This is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are. You just heard her. And Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters, the editors of an essay collection entitled This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. So, Margot and Kelly, I can't remember which one of you said at the beginning of this conversation that some political issues just naturally arose as the women were writing the essays. So a question I want to ask to all of you is, since it's so critical to our sense of self, if you all would respond to what happens when you think about homelessness and the toll that that takes physically and psychically, emotionally, because I started thinking about Melody as you were trying to find your space and make it there and the essays in your books, uh, Margot and Kelly. And I thought, because all these people, all of you have a very strong sense of what home is, you come away with a distinct feeling about that loss, even if you are not homeless. Yeah, this is Melody. Um, That feeling of being homeless is not just placelessness. It's a lack of belonging and a lack of feeling you have a voice in your own society. That's one of the things that I realized from the research really matters is feeling like you can affect change where you live, Um, whether that's getting involved, running for political office, volunteering, that you can make something happen in your town. And when you are homeless, whether that's literally homeless on the streets or simply feeling displaced in your community, Hmm. you feel like you are voiceless and unseen. Unseen, that's what it is, yeah. Yeah. Right, feeling seen Mm -hmm. in your community gives you a sense of belonging and a sense of value. And that's kind of what we're all searching for in our places. We want to live in a place that makes us feel seen and heard. Margo or Kelly? This is Kelly. (laughs) Yeah, we thought a lot about homelessness because there are so many different versions of homelessness, right? There's 
the literal not having a home and then having been forced to leave your home. Um, a lot of our essays here talk about being forced out of your homeland. One of our writers, Maya Jewel Zeller, wrote a gorgeous piece called The Privilege Button, and she talks about how she never thought of herself as homeless because her parents didn't really let her imagine herself that way, even though they absolutely were. And she reflects upon what that means when she buys her own home. The privilege button in the title is actually the button that she hits in her car to open the garage door. And the, how far she's come, that, that object becomes sort of the metaphor for this luxury of having too much of a home. Rebecca Solnit has a gorgeous quote that says, places are more constant than people ever can be. Mm. They don't have a place to call home or to identify with or community. And I think Melody's book, it sounds like, has really um, focused on the idea of community and that even more so than a family and a physical house. I think communities are really at the heart of home as well. And when you don't have any of those things, I think that can be more painful because we build our homes as a reflection of ourselves. If we don't have a home, we also can't see ourselves. So it's mm. not just other people not seeing us, but we lose our own identity, and that's also troublesome. Oh, I think you really tapped into something there. I'm wondering, Margot, if at the holiday time, you know, we have these ideas and images in our head of what home must be, and it really gets challenged during the time where there are forced images, really, forced scenarios that everybody's supposed to sign off on, whether or not that's ever been your reality at any point in your life. I was thinking about that during this particular time and wondering as someone who's just edited a whole book of essays about what home is all about, you know, how you see that. It's an interesting sort of conundrum, right? I think you're exactly right that we have a lot of images or assumptions or expectations, probably based on a lot of media that we see and hear. Holidays are sort of a time to gather together and images of meals around the table and songs around the fireplace or whatever warm and gathering images you have. When those don't line up with your exact family situation, it can be displacing, sometimes upsetting. And I think it's more the norm than the exception that families are complicated. So Going home just does seem to be often, I don't want to use the word fraught because mm. it makes it sound a little too depressing, but okay. <laughs> complicated, complex. Yes. Complex, yes. Yeah. You know, we didn't bring this book out at this time without thinking about that. I think that this is a time of year that people do think about their home place. And one essay I love from the collection that deals specifically with that is Jennifer Finney Boylan's piece, Freeing Thanksgiving from my family. Oh, that's it's very great. much. A, yeah, yeah. It's very much about her, yeah. her decision making process of whether or not, as a as a young person, to hang out in New York City with her friend and go to the parade and just be free of this expectation that she show up at her mother's table, and in the end, she does wind up going home, but it's sort of on her own terms. Melody, how would you answer that question? I love that concept of doing things on your own terms. I think the holidays revolve a lot around the house and the hearth. And I like to sort of extend it out into the larger definition of home, you know, your town, your city, your community. And there are a lot of opportunities at the holiday time to 
not only feel, you know, more connected to it, but feel like you're doing something for where you live. I mentioned earlier shopping locally, patronizing independent stores in your community. And that was something that was not on my radar at all before I started researching this book. You know, I was the ultimate Amazon shopper. And I have learned since how much that can impact your local economy and also those individual shop owners when you patronize their businesses. And an easy way to do that is just say, you know, I am going to buy one or two Christmas presents at local stores. There's a toy store down the street from me that I write about in the book called Imaginations. And I used to go there and kind of wander around and think, oh, my gosh, I can't afford anything here. You know, this is not the Target clearance aisle. And then I finally just decided, I don't want this store to close. We have to invest in what we want to see in our town. And so for me, that was deciding that I will buy Christmas presents at Imaginations. And it's a little bit more money than maybe I would have spent otherwise, but it's a way for me to create the kind of town I want to live in. So I think that's maybe one of the ways you can make the holidays a little less fraught. Take it out into things you can control and do good in your community. Well, that's a great place to end. I highly recommend both of these books. Thank you for gathering all of those beautiful essays together to give us something to ponder as we navigate this holiday season and enjoy and think about what home means to all of us. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Callie. Thank you, Callie. Thanks. Melody Warnick is an established freelance journalist and the author of This Is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are. And Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters are the editors of a collection of essays entitled This Is The Place, Women Writing About Home. Coming up, a grocery store that's fighting both hunger and obesity and offering fresh foods at affordable prices. It's happening in Dorchester and starting in January in Roxbury as well. That's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyep. That's Creole for something extra. This week's Lanyep segment is an encore from our show focusing on innovation in the culinary scene happening in Dorchester. Let's listen to our August segment on Daily Table. Prepared foods, fresh produce, and nutrient-rich protein choices are often hard to find at low or even affordable prices in several Boston neighborhoods. And according to Project Bread, more than 266,000 households in Massachusetts are living with food insecurity, a lack of reliable access to a sufficient quantity of healthful, nutritious food. But there is one grocery store in Dorchester with a mission to reduce that number by responding to its community's needs. It's called Daily Table. And here to tell us more about the grocery store are Doug Rao, president and founder of Daily Table in Dorchester. Hello, Doug. Great to be here, Kylie. I'm glad to have you. 
And Ismail Samad, executive chef at Daily Table. Welcome, Ismail. Thanks. All right. So a hundred years ago, Doug, you were here (laughs) (laughs) talking. (laughs) I know. And at that time, this was a concept. Uh, You were joined with the pointy heads over at Harvard, exploring various ways to make the world better on a fellowship. And this was your idea. So just a little bit of background about how the idea actually came into being. Yeah. Well, it was, um, you know, spent a long career in the food industry. And when I uh, graduated from my 31 years at Trader Joe's, and then I had this opportunity, this fellowship at Harvard, I studied hunger and realized first off, it isn't what I thought it was, that at the time, 49 million, I think it's down to 45 million or so uh, food insecure uh, individuals, uh, that what we're calling hungry is, is food insecurity. And that what it really was is a shortage of nutrients more than a shortage of calories for most of these, which then changed the whole mission from trying to feed an empty stomach to provide a healthy meal. And that was really the, the genesis around one of the major thrusts of Daily Table. The other genesis around Daily Table was around the fact that in conversations with the CEO of Feeding America, the big, large marketing and lobbying arm for the larger food banks in America. The Feeding America CEO, Vicky Escara, had said that one of the big challenges they're facing is the issue of people being embarrassed or ashamed to use their services. And so one of the things that Daily Table tries to accomplish is it basically is trying to tackle this, if you want to call it hunger relief or a healthcare initiative, this affordable nutrition, but to do it masquerading as a food store. So the people come in and they're able to shop and they're able to have a dignified experience to them because they hold the power of the purse. So it's up to us as a retailer to win their patronage. So Daily Table really uh, blossomed with that. It came around a uh, the site we're in right now in Dorchester, came through a partnership with Common Square Health Center, which is a wonderful, innovative health center there in, in Dorchester, that recognized that one of the things they are missing in the full spectrum of health that they provide is this access to affordable nutrition. So it's one thing to have their doctors, you know, meet with, you know, their clients that sometimes are pre-diabetic and say, listen, you've got to change your diet, get more fruits and vegetables and clean protein and, and dairy and stuff. And it's another thing to then be able to actually give them where you can go to get that because they'll immediately say, I can't afford that. What am I going to do? So that's where Common recognized that. And we were able to find a site and uh, we opened up two years ago. Well, when you were CEO of Trader Joe's, what you saw is what a lot of folks who are in those positions see just because of the nature of the business, which is a lot of food waste. I want you to define what food waste is. We're not talking about deteriorated food, but a lot of stuff that just wasn't used. And you realize that could have another life and a really good life right. in a setting like this. Yeah, well, first, I was president, just to be clear. No, no, need, for, okay. no need for a, a, a posthumous uh, promotion here. So exactly. I was president nationally of, of Trader Joe's when I retired. And so, yes, this issue of wasted food is really a key one because if you're going to go out and try to tackle this issue of affordable nutrition with the foods we should be eating, produce and protein and dairy, these are expensive in our food system. We know that from the farm bill and everything else with high fructose corn syrup, you know, the farm subsidies, that calories can be cheap. You can get plenty of calories. The problem is they're often stripped of the nutrients that we need. And so... One of the the challenges we face in America is that somewhere between 30 to 40% of what we grow is never consumed. It goes to waste. 
And one of the reasons I don't like the term food waste mm. is it makes it immediately sound like it's something a sanitation department or a compost pile is picking up. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But instead, if you mm-hmm. take those two words and just flip them, mm-hmm. and you talk about wasted, wasted food, food, okay, that yeah. is the reality mm-hmm. of what's out there in most mm-hmm. of this instance. And so we have spent the last couple of years now recovering well over a million pounds of food that was wholesome, healthy, delicious, that would have been wasted. And use that resource to help bring our costs down to the point where we can offer our customers, our members, truly delicious meals that Ismael and and his team provide, and also just produce that's in the store and along with dairy and protein at prices that compete with the fast food and the other things in the neighborhood. So it's using one problem, which is all of this food that's going to waste. That's an environmental disaster, let alone the social justice issue, and use it to solve another problem, which is how to get nutrients to the food insecure at a price that meets that budget. That's my guest, Doug Rao. He's president and founder of Daily Table in Dorchester. Um, Moving over to you, Ismael Samad, executive chef at Daily Table. The whole question of sell-by dates, now I think a lot of us who read labels or we're becoming a little bit more sophisticated about it, we get that now. Because in my own house, I know that that doesn't have the meaning that I thought it did at one point, where if I don't eat it by this time, it's dead, you know, whatever. So you can have a lot more room when I look in my refrigerator, (laughs) what's left there, to put together something that's delicious. And that's, of course, what you do with the prepared food section of the grocery store, which is Daily Table. So first of all, how do you begin to approach a given day when you come in and you have maybe some stuff that you do know you're going to have, as I would in my own home, but other donations that might be made to you of wasted food in which you have to turn into something that's wonderful? I'll start off by saying that at Daily Table, we don't sell anything that is out of code. We focus on being resourceful in recovering food that's still perfectly within code that we can turn into affordable, nutritious meals. So what we, like, when we just were coming from the store to the studio, we had a pallet of puffed brown rice. We were like, what are we going to do with a pallet of puffed brown rice? First, we're going to sell it. We're going to blow it out at a price that we can try and get some healthy cereal out to the community. Then we're trying to figure out what snack can we do. We're like, oh, we got some almond butter that we can mix it together and do a nice almond bar with crispy brown rice. Or Doug was like, hey, man, what if we did a nice little snack, like Chex Mix out of it, throw some spices Ooh. in it. And you can. Yeah. And so this will be, <laughs> yeah. and, it's, and it's brown rice, so it's going to have higher fiber than white rice, and it's going to have you know, a lower sodium than a lot of the snacks on the market. So the first thing we do is we try and put our decision through a filter of a nutrition guideline that we've worked with wonderful teams in the Boston area to create. And so that's kind of what the baseline is. What options should we actually be providing to the community and what what can people relate to and what are the things that is going to be the most benefit to not only our customers, to our operations to make sure we're being as resourceful as we need to be. I was looking back on the opening of Daily Table, and I was reading uh, one of the Boston Globe writers wrote something that I thought was so perfect about for what you do. He said, you have to act like you're on the show Chopped. Like yeah. you open up your basket to see what's in there, and then you come up with something creative, and it's always looks delicious uh, on the television, but you actually make it real there right in Dorchester at the Daily Table. So how did you hear about Daily Table? What drew you to this? How, how did you come to become a magician? <laughs> Working with brown rice palace. <laughs> right. 
Actually, mm-hmm. a farmer friend of mine sent me a link to an article that was posted about Daily Table. And then I did a little more research and I saw that they were actually looking for someone to be the culinary mind behind the operation. And I spent about eight years in Vermont where I co-founded a restaurant called The Gleanery which is in Putney, Vermont. We focus on um, the surplus food that happens on the farm or post-farmer's market or post-farm stand, things that people may shy away from because they're, the, the carrots are a little wonky or there's a lot of bug bites on the on the kale or something like that. So that comes to our back door. So I've all, for the last, I guess, eight years, I've been interested in trying to be kind of like that last stop, that last resort for smaller scale farmers to be able to come be a lot more economically um, resilient when it comes to their own operation. So that's kind of what I've been focusing on, that piece. And then when you couple it with the benefit of adding healthy food to the neighborhood of Dorchester, that kind of what is what brought me to the organization to say, man, this is something that I'd like to be a part of. Well, what got you interested in doing that? I mean, what interested you even in the gleanery doing that work so that you would be ready then to think about coming to be executive chef at Daily Table? I don't really know. I What happened is I, I moved to Vermont thinking that I was going to just be, you know, a farm-to-table chef. I had worked at other restaurants, and I, I wanted to get closer to food, and so that's when I sought to move to Vermont because I had a lot of farms, and I wanted to touch and get dirty with the food. And then from that, I started building a relationship with farmers, and I started they we started talking. I said, man, what are you doing with all that stuff? And like, well, it didn't sell at the farmer's market, or we grew too much, or... You know, the farmer down the road has better looking tomatoes than us. They are the shell and mine aren't. And so I had this joke where we were going to call it the compostery at first. And they were like, oh, why's going to use the compostery? And so we came up with this, well, you know what, how about we glean this stuff? And we really try and figure out. So we started off just thinking about ways and what, how many things we could do out of this stuff. So it just was, it was built upon the relationships and the connections and conversations that I had with a lot of the farmers that I had been working with over the last three years prior to open the restaurant. Wow. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Ismael Samad. You just heard him. He's the executive chef at Daily Table, and also Doug Rao, who's president and founder of Daily Table. And that's a grocery store, a unique grocery store in Dorchester, using fresh and prepared foods to offer to the Dorchester community that is below the kind of market rate that we might expect to pay for these high-quality and well-prepared foods and also fulfilling a need by using wasted food in a clever and unique way. Ishmael, I have to just go back and just make this note before we move on in the conversation a little bit quiet about some of those past credentials because I happen to know that you worked at a very fancy restaurant in New York called Ariel, um, where people, if you haven't heard of it, you have to spend weeks trying to get a reservation. And it's a small house payment once you get inside. So, so you're using all of those skills, plus the ones that you brought from Vermont in a just a really exciting way. Something else you're doing there that I think is great is becoming a part of the community. And Doug, I'm going to get back to you to talk about that. To be really a community organization means listening to the people in the area about foods they like. So you've been transforming some foods from folks who live there using the filter for the nutrition guide and making it exciting. Give me an example of one thing that is now offered in the store has been that came from the customers. So the neighborhood we live in is extremely diverse, and it's got a, a heavy um, island population. Of, Caribbean. Ca- yeah, Cari- mm-hmm. Caribbean mm-hmm. population. 
and because we hire from the community, we I lean heavy on the experiences in the home of the people who are working with us. And so we'll say, hey, Chris, what do you want to make? You know, so it's like, hey, you know what? I want to make a curry chicken. Well, great, but how are we going to make sure it's healthier than the curry chicken that's in the, in the market? Because we want to make sure that what we're doing not only is it healthier, it's using up the ingredients that we need to use up. So if we have kohlrabi that traditionally doesn't go in curry chicken, we're going to put it in there. If we have rutabagas that don't normally go into a stewed chicken, then we're going to put it in there. So it's really working with them to create these recipes that are going to be very familiar to the community and also going to be able to execute on what we want to do when it comes to using our produce that we need to use up and make sure it's healthier than the higher sodium options in the neighborhood. Well, another celebrity chef, Emeril Lagoski, might say you're kicking it up a notch. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, when we talk about community, Doug Rao, founder of Daily Table, not only is Ishmael doing that by listening to what people want to eat in the store, but you have a model that's very interesting. It's a membership model. Would you talk about that and, and how people become members? Anybody can shop there, but members... I would imagine, yeah. have a special feeling of ownership about it. Yeah, well, we uh, we had a, a a bit of a long wrestling match with IRS around getting our 501c3 nonprofit because, understandably, they thought if you're going to go out and collect food and expect to give people donation to get that and then turn around and offer it for sale, that that seemed like maybe a discount grocer just trying to avoid taxes. We brought up the point, you ever heard of Goodwill Industry? I mean, they collect clothing for free, and they turn around retail stores and sell it, mm-hmm. et cetera. Anyway, they, they finally got comfortable with the fact that we understand your mission. It really is primarily around bettering the health of a community. And they did understand also why it is we wanted to charge something for it, because it turns out most people don't want a handout, and they don't feel great about that, that if we can get that down to the spot where price-wise, that even someone on SNAP can come in and afford this and get 2,000 calories of healthy, nutritious food and get to the end of the month with money in their pocket, they're going to feel a lot better providing for their family. What IRS did was they said, listen, we want you to in some way restrict or track your customer base so you can make certain you're really serving people in need. Hmm. And we said, okay, fair enough. If you're a nonprofit, I understand. So we came up with, well, let's zip code track. And then if we need to, we'll restrict. Well, as it turns out, we don't need to because predominantly we're serving the zip codes right around the store. And those are zip codes that are what are called Section 330 eligible. It's a technical word for HHS, which gives additional federal funding to, like, Codman Square Health Center okay. if they serve a customer there because below a certain level based on the poverty line. So we have a little in excess of 13,000 members. Membership is free. It's very non-invasive. Literally all we ask you for is your zip code and then some identifying number, like a cell phone number or something, when you walk up to the register, you'll give that number. And now you're in our system as a member, and we track that. So we don't know your name. We don't know your address. But it does allow us, by the way, to track and notice what purchases are. So we've been able to tell that, for instance, since we first opened, our average transaction, and this is in a community that in general doesn't have money to waste on Mm -hmm. food, Mm -hmm. that this is in a community when you buy it, you eat it, that our average transaction, the average customer coming in the store, has gone up almost double since we've opened And we've noticed that there's a lot more fruits and vegetables. And that the product that Ismael and his team produce, the rave reviews we get on the entrees and the soups and the salads and the smoothies and the sandwiches and the, you know, the side dishes and the protein and things, that these are all becoming part of their regular diet. So I think the community has felt very strongly. We hear this wherever we go in the community, 
because we did put together community advisory board of both organizations that are other nonprofits and businesses, neighborhood associations, you know, and YMCA and everything else to help us get honest feedback. How can we better serve this community? We're asking the community all the time with our customers, and they're not shy about coming and telling us, hey, that was too spicy or that was too bland or why don't you carry this? And we love hearing that because we want to be there to basically disrupt a unhealthy situation regarding their diet. We want to be there to provide them things that they're going to go home and their kids and they're going to go, wow, that tasted great. And my gosh, look at that price. I can afford this. Tell me what it feels like to be standing there in daily table and see it realized and see the members enjoying and having the mission as you saw it on paper really be what it is. Well, uh, to be really blunt, which is what you want, I imagine, it's a little bit schizophrenic because there's a part of me that is still daily stressed out with making this model really work. Now, from a community standpoint, I think it's working great. People come in the store, it's bright, it's open, it's clean, it's cheerful. So I think many people would say that's the nicest looking food store in Dorchester. It doesn't feel anything like, oh my gosh, you go out and collect food, you get shorter code product from manufacturers or things like that. So from that standpoint, community-facing, it feels fantastic. I mean, the goosebump stories, as I call them, I could tell you regarding our customers that have come in and told us stories about what a difference this made in their life and about people that for the first time have ever been able to buy a BlackBerry. Mm. Literally, we had when we opened it, we had this pallet of BlackBerries for 99 cents for a big tray, beautiful BlackBerries. And this one lady just said, I have never been able to buy a BlackBerry in my life. She bought three or four of them and my kids are splurging. Those are the moments that you go, this was all worth it. On the other hand, I say a little schizophrenic only because, on the other hand, there's the business model, which were relatively unique, quite frankly, in that we're a nonprofit, but we're attempting to be break even. We don't really care about profit. There's no shareholders that get any stake, right? So all we'd like to do is to get to the spot where if we can cover our expenses by our revenue, then it frees us to focus on customers and services instead of fundraising activities. We'd How love to get there. How close are you there. to that goal? Well, we're about two-thirds of the way. Okay, well, and that's, so it's, it's pretty it's, good for a short period of time. Oh, my gosh. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> um, and In all honesty, um, I don't think there's any other food, certainly the nonprofit that we know of in America, that could say that. We hope that with the second store opening in Roxbury, should open in October, uh, right uh, down Delhi Square, we actually think that we can cut that loss, so to say, or raise our part of covering it to in the 80 to 85 percent, which will really be world class at that point. So we're quite optimistic, but of course we're stressed, you know, because it's yeah. a it is a business that you got to run. You got to run it as efficiently as effectively, and most importantly, you want every customer that you engage with to walk away feeling better and to feel like that was a great deal. That was that was wonderful food, or the people there are so friendly. And you know, my gosh, look at all this money I saved. So those are the parts that every day you got to earn it all over again. Mm-hmm. Ismail, how would you answer that question? How what how does it feel to stand there and sort of bring all your culinary expertise to play in this very special place. I have to agree with Doug as far as when you hear the stories and people come in and say, man, you know what, I actually know and I can really attest that my children are eating better. And the fact that that our community is aware that we need to eat differently, we need to eat better, and now they have an option, it, it really is, it makes you feel good, like you're really doing work that that is meaningful. And at the same time, I'm working with a team in the kitchen that is happy that they're delivering on that mission as well. And they're learning to cook differently and they're learning to cook differently at home and they become the advocates as well in the community. 
And so that, to me, it's, it's a humbling experience for me just to be a part of that sort of energy that, that's really infiltrating a community and people's homes and by each person at one at a time. It, it feels good. And I should note that 85% of the people who work in the daily table are from the neighborhood. So you really get a return in that way. Has anybody come to either of you outside of Boston to say, we're thinking about this, we'd like to do something like that? I don't think I'm exaggerating here. We've had about 500 requests from communities around the country saying, we need a daily table. We've had the mayor of Providence in our store. We've had Jim McGovern, the U.S. congressman in the store. We've had meetings with the mayor's office in in Lawrence and other communities, Baton Rouge and Los Angeles, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is we need to get this model, this proof of concept set right. To us, the the real challenge is that no other hunger relief health initiative has been able to reach economic sustainability, and hence they're not scalable. Mm. So as great as they are, and, you know, I'm a big fan of Greater Boston Food Bank, for instance, but they're not scalable in the sense that they could open up and have five of them because they're economically so dependent upon both philanthropic and other funding. So the concept of Daily Tables, can we get a nonprofit initiative that's bringing the foods we should be eating into a community at a price they can afford to be economically sustainable? If it is, then it's scalable. At that point, we've had long conversations with the mayor's office in New York City with their chief of economic development, their deputy mayor that's there, et cetera, that would very much like to see Daily Table come to the Bronx and is willing to really help move hills to to have that happen. And so we would love to be in the spot where we could say, now we're ready to start really thinking seriously about where else to go in Massachusetts and other areas of the country. Because the need, unfortunately, is almost everywhere. And it's not getting less need, by the way. And particularly when you think about the numbers for children who are hungry every day, it's quite devastating. So just to know that you're actually able to contribute to reducing any of that is amazing. Thank you both for joining me. This is a great conversation, and I am very impressed with what you both do. Oh, thanks. It was good being here. Doug Rao is the president and founder of Daily Table in Dorchester, and Ismael Samad is the executive chef at Daily Table. Here's a small addition to our story. Daily Table's second location will open in January 2018 in Dudley Square in Roxbury. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Andrea Aswahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.